<laughs> Hello and welcome to Scopy Radio. My name's Daniel Johansson. And I'm Maureen Smith. And today we are joined by Dado, the director of the Little Match Girl Passion with Facility Theater. Thank you so much for coming today. Yay. Hi. How are you today? <laughs> good. I'm good. I'm very cool. good. I'm happy. Yeah. In this apartment with the cats. <laughs> <laughs> They're both good cats. I do notice that for those keeping track, I like to believe that. First off, right into the show, if you actually, if anyone actually does keep track of cats, I imagine someone out there has a cat tally because we always mention at the beginning of the show whether they're around or not. But you can always tell how rowdy they've gotten before the show, and oh. I think that this afternoon they've just been a couple rowdy cats. And at least, <laughs> at least Oscar definitely because Oscar's are, are they both in the room or just Oscar? I closed Oscar no, in the room. Moody. Yeah, Moody's Moody. around. Hey. She, she's curious. She, she wants to come yes. here. She knows exactly when we start recording. Yeah, she's knows the you know how that we do that thing? Uh-huh. Um the Welcome the, to Scopy Radio, my yeah. name. Yeah. I think that for her is an audio cue to jump into someone's oh, lap. Oh this is awesome. Yeah. It's a podcast with a kitty. It's great. <laughs> Hi, honey. Hi. Can you hear me? Can yeah. you hear me? Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, good. Good. Cool. Good. So, um, hmm. well, first of all, I'm I'm so glad that um, we were able to make this work and that um, that you were able to join us. And yes, thank you. And that that were your first podcast. That's yes, pretty cool. My very first one. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering, um, could you tell oh, us? She's so happy. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> could you uh, could you tell us a little bit about the uh, the Little Mash Girl Passion Project? Yes. So we can... Do you want to start at the beginning? Or do you just want to start with this weekend? Or let's what should I... The, let's start at the yeah, beginning. go for it. I had um, been... Somebody handed me the CD of this piece of music in 2013. Um, a mentor type of person. And I was in grad school at the University of Chicago... And I was doing, um, I'm studying, I was getting an MFA in visual art. Oh, wow. And I was starting to think about my exit from grad school, because it's a two-year program. And I, uh, I immediately, when I listened to this music, I was immediately uh, just, uh, you know, uh, I guess, overtaken with it. And mm-hmm. I knew that um, this was not... I, everyone always thinks this was my thesis. This was not my thesis. This was a vehicle that I attached to, to my thesis mm. to steer myself out of grad school. And so I basically uh, produced a, a series of workshops about uh, where we, we performed the Little Match Girl Passion. Um, and we we did a uh, uh, we did one in March of 2014, and then we did one in May. And it changed quite a bit. And I was able to get money from the from U Chicago to hire some pretty good singers. Cool. And and then we uh, and then after I graduated, I started applying for the Edis Prize, and then I won it, and <laughs> that was a big surprise. And then um, so that allowed me to attach this project proposal to a Facility Theater. Facility Theater is a brand new teeny tiny little theater company in Chicago. They're down more in the Wicker Park area. And um, this was their third production. 
And cool. that was exciting, yeah, because they're they're very risky. They want to do experimental type of treatments of uh, new plays or old plays. They don't really care, but they want a, a very uh, unique and experimental approach. So I'm calling this a spectacle opera. That's what I've been calling it. But mm -hmm. I, we don't really know what it is. And when you go on social media, we're all sort of out there babbling, like, what are we doing? We don't know what this is. We're using David Lang to perform it, but it's a, quite a spectacle. It doesn't feel like theater. I'm a theater director. It does not feel like theater. Yeah, that I think. Uh, so that's the interesting thing for me, because I did this as a undergrad student for a choir. So it was like and we did it. We did it in we did it as like paired with the dance company, the dance not company, but the was dance school. No, no. This was at the University of Central Florida. Um, okay. It was like oof, seven years ago, maybe. Um, but yeah, so I was in school. And so the experience was, let's do this thing, but like do it very much like as Lang intended. And then they added a dancer to it. And it was just one dancer who was kind of just telling the story of the little match girl. And so it was very... There wasn't, like, the percussion is, like, the score mm -hmm. is very demanding, and you know this, mm -hmm. like, the music yeah. is very demanding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. for a bunch, for people that were, like, you know, early 20s, late teens even, you know, 18, 19, you Get your asses old. kicked. Yeah, right. It's it really was just, hard. like, let's get this thing yeah. performed. And it, I think we did a good, <laughs> great job with it. But so the thing that's super interesting for me is, you know, talking about, um, I, I want to hear more about because I think I actually think that that some of our listeners will probably be familiar with the work. But what I'm also really interested about, and kind of what I've heard from, you know, because like uh, we know um, Sarah Thompson Johansson, mm -hmm. who's is she singing on it, right? Yeah. Mm, oh yeah. Um, She's magnificent. And the bit the what I've kind of seen from its social media and folks that have I've I think a couple people have seen it, um, and because it's you're, it's coming on your third weekend, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That it's you really. At, like there's a lot more going on and so i what <laughs> how how do you, have you found a way to like best describe that or and I, it's communicated like people like there people know to expect more but like yeah. how what how would you it's like taking a bath in david lang sure okay it really you've had a bath <laughs> Wow. When it's over, yeah, <laughs> that's how people look. <laughs> they look like they've been washed. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I love theater and I love directing plays, but I just gotta say, like, the whole reason I went back to grad school is because I start to get depressed because I'm a trained actor. Okay, sure. like you guys, are trained singers. I'm a trained actor, so I, and I started directing plays because um, I started having kids, and I was like, well. If I'm the director, I'm the boss, and I can take my kid to work, and that kind of thing. And the, the, I started to get depressed when I was directing plays, and I couldn't figure out what was the problem. And so I started looking into grad school programs, and I found I did not want to study theater. I did mm -hmm. not want to study any more theater. I didn't want to be around theater. And so that's how I, I started. Somebody said, why don't you go see the critiques over at the University of Chicago uh, at Dova? And I was like, what's that? And there's this free, open to the public critiques of the, the people, the candidates there getting their degrees. And you can just go watch people talk about art. 
And I started doing that. And then I was like, well, why can't I just go to this school? And I just applied to that school. And then that sort of broke it down for me in such a way that I was not anymore attached to any discipline. And, you know, I was exposed to mm-hmm. sculpture. I taught myself to edit films. I started just like really chasing for two years after what I was interested in. Sure. And, yeah. um, and the Match Girl just sort of fell in the path of all of that mess. And it was a mess. It was a big, huge mess. And, and so um, I think my approach to this iteration here is a quite, uh, it's not unlike what I was doing when we were workshopping this at the University of Chicago. Anybody who saw it there will certainly re- recognize um, aspects that I've brought forward into this work. But um, this is what I got to say that I think is so unusual. It's a very... Uh, I think you hit it on the head, Dan, when you said how demanding the piece is, but it's also like uh, vocally, he's written this for vocalists to perform with their voices as percussion instruments, Mm -hmm. or that's how I perceive it. I'm not a musician, but that's what it looks like. No, that's very astute because, and especially when you like when you realize that like the p- the piano is a percussive instrument and the way yeah. so like thinking about those what's going on vocally there like the in a lot of ways and it's one of these things where um you know we mentioned before we started recording like um the the thing that kind of sets up this work in the scheme of music history is that it is a, a passion that it is this kind of like uh, storytelling that is um like mythological mythological almost um but then like comparing that to like you know you have a small choir you have accompaniment and you you want to say that it's like this lyrical experience but in a lot of ways the choir are uh you know they're playing accompaniment to the story you know what I mean? Like, or is yes, that... yes. But um, I think what's different here, uh, two things very are very different than because uh, I saw this performed live at the BNN sure. Hall, the Northwestern. In fact, I've brought some of those singers down cool. here uh, to our production. Um, is that uh, this is a, a? I find this to be a very interior piece of music, mm-hmm. and uh, so I spend a lot of time trying to construct an interiority that's like a like a container for people with inside with which to watch uh and hear this um music and um so even though yes it's a spectacle i suppose it's also there's something very internalized about it so people sort of go inward when they're watching this and the other thing that's really different from a performative point of view is that i'm asking the vocalists to memorize this and that was and I paid them to do it because it's very daunting to learn this piece it all goes in loops it's very cyclical it's very repetitive and it was very difficult for them to do that mm-hmm. um, and I I don't know if it's a fair comparison but I, I memorize lines all the time when I'm acting in plays you know so I, I asked Alex Monroe my my music director slash percussionist who he could not be here today but uh, but you know I was like can can we ask them to do this and he was like well yeah well yeah so a number of things really cool things happened first they did it 
Mm-hmm. And now they think they have superpowers, right? Which is amazing <laughs> because they are very confident and they go out there and they... But what's really cool about how they solve the memorization problems is um, they've sort of created like this like uh, little sign languages of music to mm-hmm. communicate to each other. So they're actually made... They've actually made a sort of a music sign system to talk to each other during this performance. It's fucking cool as shit. It's really cool. It's really awesome. I'm very, I'm very excited for. And them. that, that was just the ensemble kind of like forming a hive mind and like mm-hmm. figuring that out among mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah, to make because it work. Alex Monroe, he'll be the first to say, "Look, I'm not a music director. I'm a percussionist." But he falls into that role um, in this um, project. He did it with me at U Chicago, so mm-hmm. we wanted to. He wanted to do it with me again this time and I'm so glad that he did because he as the um, other creative mind in this who comes in and has to create all of this percussion and sometimes he uses the score the Lang score and then sometimes he's like hmm I think we want a a body or sometimes he'll bring a chain or like this time I don't want to give it away okay but Mm. I'll just tell you he's using a tire okay so just I don't know he's very clever and he's very adventurous percussionists are some of the most resourceful musicians out there. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah. I, I, I uh, kind of just an anecdote. I from, really hope you're telling the, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm, I, I don't think this. this is what, I don't think this is what you're thinking. I'm I want to hear it. So, um, an anecdote from when I was in college of my music theory teacher was talking to, to us. Um, cause most of the theory faculty at my undergrad were composers that just like were teaching music theory as their day job. So, um, one of them was talking about how they were composing this piece and how the favorite, his favorite musician to write for is percussion because he was like, I could write a piece for a 1973 Volkswagen Beetle, um, a half eaten tire and four church bells. And I could say that we're going to perform it in three months and I'll be damned if I won't show up to the dress rehearsal and I'll see a 1973 Volkswagen Beetle, a half-eaten tire, and four church bells. Really? Like, so, like he's like, percussionists make it happen. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they love a yes. challenge. And so, like, it's <laughs> it does not surprise me that your percussionist was like, hmm, maybe I let's try a tire. Try. <laughs> Last time we did it, when we were in 2014, he used the very uh, resonant metal staircase to execute the and he taught the performers to when to hit it oh my gosh i mean he's just uh, yeah he's amazing he's really cool and this time we're doing it in a vacant middle school basement it's it's chicago's second oldest polish parish has a large uh, school area that is not being used but it's not abandoned it's not dilapidated it's very clean and we just they somehow made some arrangement facility theater made this amazing arrangement and um it's the acoustics are phenomenal you will you'll it's yeah it's cool cool really cool yeah i um how many uh singers are on a part do you know? Well, I, I got eight this time. Last cool. time I had four. This time I we took eight and uh, we thought uh, we'll trade them out because we don't know. And Alex is not a singer. Alex Monroe also is not a singer. And we were just wondering, like, should we expect one soprano to be able to do three nights of nine shows? We didn't know. 
and that tenor rolls tenor lines pretty hard so then we just then we hired eight and that allowed them to piggyback off each other and I also have six movement performers and I also have three grandmothers and I have Alex Monroe wait specifically three grand they're what? I call them grandmothers. <laughs> I I I they're um these uh they're the grandmothers. They're in the in the here's what's not in the little match girl passion. The little match girl? Right. I don't want her. Why? Well, I <laughs> don't want to sound like an asshole, but I have no interest in watching a little girl run around and shiver and freeze to death. And I don't mean That's that. That's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't mean. Absolutely. I I find that to be uninteresting. And what I'm interested in is why did she freeze to death? And so what you're going to see is you're going to see something I call systemic empathy. I, that's what I was studying a lot in grad school. And like, why do we pull over when there's a car crash and help the person or not? Like, what are the democratic empathies in place when this is going on when someone's being attacked or when someone's freezing on new year's eve and she can't sell a match and she can't go home or she'll get beaten up by her dad and this poor thing she lights these matches but what she sees is her grandmother and so in 2013 there was or 2014 13 there was this whole hallucinogenic component that i was not able to investigate at all i was way too busy and overwhelmed with the music and all this other stuff going on and so i went last year when I found out I won the Edis Prize I, I was directing a play in Princeton at the time Princeton New Jersey and before I came back to Chicago I scurried off to Italy and I went to Assisi and I went to church for like 10 days I just went and I just went in and out of churches because Assisi is where the oldest churches are right so mm-hmm. I was like well okay there's the St. Matthew aspect that clearly influencing David Lang so there's some Christian thing going on here. So I just went to the oldest place, and Assisi's a walkable city, very walkable. And I was not so much watching the mass as I was watching the behaviors before bookending the masses. Mm. And then that's where I start to see the grandmothers and start to then. So I extricated a lot of their behaviors, and that's what you see when you when 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 you're watching this match girl. That's not like they're these very very old women, but they are. There were so many fascinating kinds of people in Assisi, and I didn't want one grandmother, so I made I made there be three. Well, that's a super. So I super. <laughs> it's a hallucination. Get, I actually really get where you're coming from, though, you get because it? of the. Well, and I think, like, I remember when I, we were looking at the Little Match Girl Passion, it was this whole thing of, like, oh, it's a Christ metaphor. And I was like, okay. I mean, like, I like fine, but I, I think that's kind of why, you know, we go to church. Um, we go to, we sing at a, in the choir for a Lutheran church. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, the thing that, the one thing that I always, because I, I appreciate spirituality, I appreciate, like, I think meditation is really powerful, but I can just never get how caught up people get with the the suffering aspect and i think that's kind of how i i i I kind of understand where you're coming from with the the little match girl passion where it's like why do you why do we want to it's we're romanticizing a girl freezing to death yeah no no there's nothing sympathy i reject sympathy sentimentality and I, i i i reject that in the regard to this piece and i don't i don't i would rather wonder about suffering or i would rather contemplate 
the sort of human condition that allows suffering. And I would rather people really, um, there's some very uh, radical Eucharistic shit going on over there at the Holy Trinity Church where we're doing magical passion. Mm. It's unusual because I, 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 I remember my thesis professor going, well, who's going to play the match girl? And I was like, there's no match girl. But it seemed so normal to me. I think because Lang didn't write a line, really, of the match girl. In the in his piece either I mean he does write that part where it, where she's kind of like shivering it sounds like a little bit but it's not literal and I I thought it would be better to uh, to really think about what are univer- universal s- em- empathic systems like when you shake someone's hand or when someone hugs or when someone waves or if someone claps like clapping is such a strange universal thing anywhere on the planet mm-hmm. when you're clapping it's a signature tour for something but it can be many kinds of things it can be attention it could be congratulations yeah so is that um is this kind of a that because what it what makes me think of when you talk about this idea of like um i'm so sorry i forget the words that you put it in sympathetic empathy systemic systemic empathy sorry mm-hmm. is that um a dynamic that you're measuring between perform the, in, within the performance itself or is that something that like you're looking for that that um from the audience, like is uh, there... it's 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 the the it's in the performance. It's in the it's in the performances. There's a lot of um uh, of uh, we we've done a, a quite a lot of integrating the movement performers and the vocalists. So there's a lot of that kind of exchange going on. But what I've done with the movement performers is I've um well match girl uh, if if you're familiar with it the the uh, it's 15 movements long mm-hmm. um and uh even numbered movements are all thematically they have a strong thematic correlation uh and then the odd numbered ones are more of the they're more uh like storytelling uh, no that's more the oratory like the more oh, bigger sorry, larger sorry. unusual movements that are singular and so in the even numbered ones where it's mostly the narrative uh and, and you'll hear the magical story um that's where i would take my movement performers and we would build these like systems that you recognize as a sort of intrinsically human sort of system going on and you'll see it build and you see it unravel and you might see See glimpses of things that are, you know, you know, uh, endemic to human movement, but aren't like uh, aren't literally recognizable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, that allows people to sort of space out, but then in a is sort of a spiritual but intellectual way. That's interesting. Yeah, because yeah, I was going to ask you. Um, cause I am a deep appreciator of high concept, but I think our, like once you, once it, once you kind of get into high concept, it can sometimes you, um, it's, it's the relatability, the like, yeah. the, the bringing yeah. the audience into that experience. Yeah. And I, I think that's really interesting that, cause is that like pretty much that, that space that kind of mental intellectual spacing out space is that kind of the where you're bringing them to well you know it's funny because i get identified a lot and this town is like an experimental artist blah 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 you know and i guess that you could say that i am that but i never do that in a way to 
alienate an audience. I want to be accessible. It's not my intention to alienate sure, an yeah. audience or to uh, to be pretentious or to uh, 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 you know exclude uh, an audience. If they've made the pain and the ass to come to the place, I want them to feel like they came and got something and they're welcome. And and I, I know not a lot of ex- experimental, I guess you could say theater is designed that way and that's okay too. But the way that I approach it is I think I, I like to think of myself as a warmer side of experimentalism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and so to that end, um, yeah, I, yeah, maybe it is a little high concept, but it is also meant to uh, allow the audience to go into, a, like I said, like kind of an interior state of reflection. And, um, but there are, listen, plenty of theater people come see this. They're like, I don't get this. What the fuck are you doing? Like I get, and I, I'm fine with that because there's no story. There's no script. I mean, there is a story, but it's a one page story. You know, she's got matches and she's cold. And she freezes. She wakes up and when they find her in the morning, she's got a smile on her face. Right. And, and the, then it's New Year's Eve. It's New Year's Day. I mean, New Year's Day when she wakes up. So I, or when she's, when she's found dead. So I feel, I feel like it's better to not, to not uh, think too hard into the, like I'm the one who does the high, the, the hard thinking into the concept, right? But the audience job is really just, you know, if you want to uh, relax or you want to intellectualize, I think all those things are available at this kind of um, an experience. And I want to tell you one more thing that happened to me. Um, I went to also in my travels, another place I went to was uh, Krakow. And I talk about this a little bit in the program of Match Girl, but when I was in Krakow, I was at an experimental theater festival called the Baska Comedia. And it was in December. And um, I saw a piece of theater by a director called Agata Dudagratz. And people have been telling me for years to meet this woman. And I, so finally I got to see her work. And they're so nice to you in Krakow if you come from America <laughs> to mm-hmm. see their theater. So the next day I went to her lecture and they provided me with a translator and she was, they, it was really lovely. And I did all this on my own. Like I didn't even get a foundation or anything to pay. I just like found a way cheaply to go to Krakow and do this. And I asked a guy to do to Graz. I was like, what is this kind of theater? Because I've never, I don't understand I don't understand what I'm, what I exactly is the form. And she described this thing called the mysterium, mysterium. Mm. And so I turned to my translator and I said, what's this? And she says, um, it's not a word there's in English. And I was like, well, I, I can't. She's like, it's like the plays you see in a church. And so when she said that, I was like, oh. okay, so now that got me on the track of because what are you doing in a church? You know, I know there's like a mass and the rituals and stuff. But also there's this kind of interior reflection going on. And that's how I got started on creating this concept for how to get into that place where you could watch something like this and listen to it and take a bath. <laughs> I mean, that makes a lot of sense. The music, the music does that I, you don't I, have to come you have to come you she's like i totally can see this all in my head well, <laughs> well no i no i'm like i'm very much the, the way i process is the way i process is quietly like i i very much like i when you said it's the kind of play that you see at a church like that evokes something very to me that evokes something me like too. A, it's it's what a it's it? a it's a mood is what it is it's yeah. like 
Yeah. Like, I think of, like, the color maroon, and I think of, like, I think of, like, it's raining, and it's, like, and, like, and you're confused, but, like, it, it, it evokes, it evokes a very specific mood Mm. in my mind, and so, like, but what's, what's interesting about, like, um, bringing a mood to life is that there's because it's an ambiguous concept there's so much freedom there so i like the idea of that as a genre is like yeah. a mysterium yeah. the yeah. kind of play you would see in a church <laughs> right like, right you're like right. okay right. like as long as i as long as i stay true to that vibe as a through line then yeah it's a mysterium and i think that that's that's cool it's as a, cool a concept word. absolutely what a cool word no, well absolutely and i think that when you call something a passion i mean cuz that's the thing is I like that's ultimately where I was getting to from kind of my experience is like, yeah, you know, if you do a little magical passion and you do it like the traditional way and you like really tell that story. Yeah, you're going to probably like make people react emotionally because you're telling the story like exactly as you said, you're telling the story of a girl dying on New Year's Eve and like how that's that's it's tragic. And it's like you're going to but I you know something I, I think a lot about. Um, oh man, I don't remember the specific thing, but I remember that there was a, pl- a play that I saw and I went with a couple of people that were theater critics and afterwards they were talking about it and it was like talking about this idea of when the direction and when the, when the, um, experience is just looking to shock you and just looking to pull at you emotionally, not for the sake of, of bringing you to something with a with a purpose but just so that you leave knowing that you reacted emotionally to a thing but that doesn't mean that it's a like when that doesn't mean that it's a like potential positive experience or a potential like it that's i guess that my my point here is that a thing can be moving and not hit on these things that we're talking about here and i think that's an interest such an interesting this this space that you're taking it is an interesting thing in that vein because it's it's not that yeah it's about finding finding what is moving about this like passion this mysterium this like play that you would have in a church that like the thing that i was speaking to earlier like the idea of like spirituality itself like it's it's clearly something that like humanity we want that we want to find that like intellectual spacing out space we want to find this thing that we can't really put into words but that and i think that the reason why why i'm like pontificating on this is because that's very much what the music if you let that music be a wash in that way it's very much a headspace that it takes you to you know i'm so glad you're saying this because you're making me remember that the piece of this entire score. Cause some of it, I, it's not that I love Little Magical Passion. Some of the music is unbearable. Like, it's hard to listen to. The, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, I'm like, oh, God. You know, I, it's actually irritating. And the piece that I um, was the most, struggled with the most when we did this at U Chicago is the piece I think that is now really the the signature piece, the, the movement that was, has come out the strongest. And it's probably because I was 
the most afraid of it and I was just sort of repulsed by the kind of mu- the music and uh, you know and it's dif- very difficult for that alto to get up there and sing that mm-hmm. and ugh, you know so yeah I actually wrote a <laughs> I actually wrote a science grant on that piece of music it's 14 or 13 track 13 in Little Magical Passions when it is time it's called when it is time and it's very hard to sing the, the you're supposed to hyperventilate a little bit he wants David Lang wants you to sort of he wants to hear the gra- grasping for breath but I wrote this grant about science grant about valency and we staged it one night with the left hand and then the next night we staged it with the right hand we had this all this theories with the um with the uh with this uh, uh psychology department of the University of Chicago came over and they were we were writing these grants about um uh if you if you gesture with your right hand what how does the audience perceive it as opposed to if you gesture with your left hand and that we all know right we all know that most presidents who are elected are right-handed but the question that we had when we wrote the science grant was what do left-handed people see Mm. and so there's not a lot of research on that i guess yeah anyway that's a little side track there it was a total very interesting no i so i i appreciate kind of the um multidisciplinary approach that you're taking on this like you're 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 kind of looking at it at least and you know granted this is a person who has not seen the production but based on based on how you're talking about this you're really looking at this from every angle which i which um i think is i think is refreshing um, I, I think that kind of what's happening, I, I think that's kind of what's trying to happen in opera. But I think that when opera people do opera, they do opera. Does that make does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. And I think that when people who are not opera people do opera, they they have more they have more perspective on yeah, it. Yeah, and I mean because the tradition of opera pulls from so many different experiences you know i think that is um really so yeah well and i mean what i mean by that is like like um we've talked a bit about kind of like the sacred music like what passions look like like when bach wrote a passion and things like that but like a lot of these things were also um were they were parallel to movements that were going on musically, like in street music and in performance music. And like the the way that music happened throughout history, like the things that were performed in opera houses were more similar to the things performed in church than they weren't. And that was just because back 300 years ago, like church was so central to people's lives like in some cases that was how they that was their time to be social so like the it the that like it it was truly an experience of playing the music that they enjoyed because that was the music of the time period the music of the culture and all that stuff and so it's that i see that tradition of of opera especially like you know when you start looking at like Verdi and Puccini who are all about like wanting people to leave with a melody that they could hum you know and, and things that you get caught in your head like that's a very um Italian opera thing and so it's in, in a lot of ways when you look at like the history of of these sung storytelling traditions it's about finding these other I mean gr- and even when you, if you want to go to the, like the material level of 
when you look at like grand opera, like French opera, like big five act operas where they like bring in circus uh, yeah, yeah. animals, and and you know you still have that to some degree in major houses where it's about bringing in ballet dancers and bringing in you know all of this to what the time was right. Yeah, and what do you know about this regi? Regi Teatro. No, what is that? Oh, oh, you know, um, you know what, is wait, that wait. from Italy? Is that in Italy? It's German, I okay. think. I don't. I just know one of my professors was like, "You need to look up Regi, Regi, Regi," and I was, I, I was like, "Okay," but it's like sort of like enfant terrible of opera directors come in and like deconstruct and do all these hyper. Intense, well, bloody, oh, I overtly mean, sexualized. I mean, sort of treatments of these operas that, and that's German opera. I mean, there was there was a production of this is infamous. It was like in two thousand seven. There was a production of La Traviata. I think I think it was La Traviata, where in the back of at, very mm. far upstage, like against against the the back wall, there was just a giant eye that followed all of the action i think i have seen images of that yeah i think it was la traviata Uh. but um but that's like (laughs) to me when i think of like experimental stagings of of like of opera in germany i think of the la traviata eye and like i saw i like i saw this outdoor production i lived in germany for a summer and i saw this outdoor production of faust like the the play f- the play Faust uh-huh. in German uh-huh. and it was very long and I was very <laughs> tired and I was definitely seventeen and it, it did not <laughs> it did not resonate with me at all I was not into it but as an adult it it like but it has stayed more. it has stayed with me and I just I just remember because like the, the the Faust story you know I don't need to explain it at all but I, like I'm there terrified was, of Faust oh Faust is I got a Faust in me Faust is a nightmare yes. Yeah. But um, there was this one scene where Faust was standing very far downstage for like five minutes just standing there. And behind him, people were walking in and out of the wings. Just like a person would walk across the stage into a wing and then another person. And then like more people started doing it and they started moving faster. And then all of a sudden there were just like this crowd of people running back and forth for like literally no words just a break of people and just utterly like conceptual to the point of masturbatory honestly uh-huh. <laughs> well and i i think it's i think and it's it was outside it was outside yeah i think it's an interesting thing and i think this really um starts to tie into another thing that we wanted to ask you about um because in a lot of ways like opera's roots i i think are extremely experimental i think you know when you look at the things that composers were like this is the thing that needs to have happen like on a on a in in any sense of a multidisciplinary level like anytime a composer was like i want to incorporate that i mean that was the boundaries of what the art form was capable of back then mm-hmm. like i don't i don't think that i think that and it's an interesting thing the world we live in now where like when you think about the boundaries of what we're capable of artistically those are so expanded just because people yes. have either done it um, or the technology is available to the point that we're all a little confused. Absolutely. Well, and I, I so I, I, you know, I'm really interested, kind of, on your perspective on that, but especially um, coming from your theater background, bringing working with something that whose roots are so, like, the passion roots of of something that is a, such a 
like it's a classical singing tradition like i think that's why a lot of universities like lang a lot um because it pulls so much from music's history and so I'm, is that really is that true i i believe that i don't i don't i'm not like a lang expert or anything like that i've done i've done some i've done a little bit of lang lang is a is a favorite for for um young young ish performers with a lot of energy why because um because it's a challenge but it's not so much a challenge that it's not doable like it's it is it is something that like once you get it you get it and it's very satisfying and so i think that it's i think that it's a good piece for music directors that want to mm. excite the 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 performers that they're working with. But then also getting to be like, this is the concept, what a passion means. This is about what it it means to tell a mythological story. This is something that is tapping into this, something that we've been talking about before, this idea of what is like a spiritual work, what is a piece of music that exists that isn't a, a staged, here is your character experience, but is also still telling a narrative through kind of like like a chorus you know very subliminal yeah yeah and i so i'm you know um Mm. i'm really kind of curious um with your experience now that you've had a few years of experience kind of exploring this lang you know how do your roots um apply to the work that you find yourself doing does that make sense my roots as uh, a theater theater Performer and director. Performer and director. I am. Uh, I will. I think that's a good question. I. I when I was raised dancing by dancers. My grandma was in vaudeville, so I suppose that might have something to do with my entry into it from a movement perspective. I wouldn't call it choreography. I don't say they're dancing, but I have an interest in kinesiology. Um, my overall, I guess, applied pedagogy to anything I do is cake. Cake. Yeah, so I just <laughs> got to tell you what it is. So yeah, cake yeah. is, uh, okay, <laughs> C is for collections, okay, because I really believe objects are alive, okay? okay? I think everything is alive around us and connected in ways we don't understand. A stands for analysis, which is what I teach mostly in academic settings like at DePaul or UIC. I often teach uh, character analysis or uh, uh, breakdown strategies for scripts, things like that. Analysis, a K stands for kinesiology, which is what I was talking about, movement and and how it's it's a lot more intricate uh, and I guess I want to say... like I used the word subliminal before, I think there's a lot of things about movement that we don't understand. And E stands for ensemble, which is all of that. Yeah. Right? So if I'm acting or directing in a play or, or, or making a magical project, I'm applying that uh, strategy to pretty much everything. And I talk to my students about it a lot and they get it. They really like it, you know, because it kind of frees them of... My acting students. When I say students, I mean my acting students because they often are um, af- not afraid of like a prop, but they're they don't know how to give it a, a, life. A, a, yeah, yeah, and maybe it doesn't need life, or maybe it's just tape. But then, like, I can 
<laughs> objectify this tape. I'm holding right. a roll of duct tape right now, <laughs> in case you're wondering <laughs> out there. And but like, but like, it's just interesting to kind of, to get people to uh, acknowledge the, the. And so that's why I find the tire that Alex Monroe has brought in very interesting. And we have some objects in Match Girl that are very interesting. That we just you know sometimes they're uh, given more weight than others, and I find that to be. Um, very engaging and uh, infinitely, you know, a lot, a lot of pliability. I mean, if you start looking at everything around you that's an object that, and and consider it to be alive, then suddenly you have just broken a lot of rules in your head, you know. Like if you're watching, mm-hmm. for instance, I'm a director, right? So yeah. if I'm watching a play and something's bothering me, I'm looking at a, maybe I'm looking at an actor on stage and they're maybe making a, maybe it's a cop drama and they're making a confession and the, the, maybe the position's really bothering me. And I'm thinking in my head as a director, well, why didn't the director just move the table? Mm. Why didn't they do that? Mm-hmm. But the director had it in their head for some reason that that is a table and it's stuck there because it's a table. It's not. It can yeah. move. You can move at any time. You can get up and move the table. So I don't think we think that way with objects. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, you know, I think it's something that we think about a lot in the sense of being able to apply like agency and artistic licensure to the work that we're doing. Do you know what I mean? Like bringing that that decision making process to the work that we're doing. That ability to be like, I'm going to make a choice. You don't, do you know what I like? Well, like a hot topic today in, in in I'm sure probably in opera as well is is casting. You know, in Chicago theater, like if I'm looking at a script, I'm thinking, why is this person written to be a man? Why is the person written to be a woman? Do they have to be a woman? You know, mm-hmm. do they have to be a man? Am I going to get in trouble if I do? Oh, let's say a play I did, The Mutilated. It's by Tennessee Williams. Yes, you're going to get in trouble if you do The Mutilated and you take two of the roles who are written as women and you make them into men. You're going to get in trouble by the Williams estate. The estate of Tennessee Williams might sue you. Mm -hmm. But maybe there are other plays that they don't give a shit. And those are, then you don't have to worry about that. You know what I mean? And you really shouldn't worry about that. Mm. You should not worry about that. Um, I did a play a while ago that really taught me a lot. It was a Harold Pinter play, and um, it was called A Night Out. It's actually a teleplay. And the guy was, uh, uh, there was a guy in the play, and his name was Albert, and he needed a mother. And I couldn't find anybody to play Albert's mother, and I remember thinking one night on my drive home, if I could get anybody in the world to play Albert's mother who would it be and the person who popped into my head was not a mother and it wasn't a woman it was a man and I asked him to do it and he did it and we were terrified on opening night we're like what have we done we're Harold Pinter is going to come out of his grave and kill us mm-hmm. all and it went fine mm-hmm. it was totally fine there was nothing wrong with what we did except we gave a job to a man that could have gone to a woman that's bad but other than that like it opened my eyes to a lot of things yeah and and really just why is the rule there? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I think that there's... Are there a lot of rules in opera? Oh, there are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. God, there well, are a lot of rules. Well, not only... So, I'm here to break them. They, <laughs> thank God. So um, there's... Kind of what's difficult with casting in opera is that there will be a particular character, let's say Nanetta in Falstaff. Nanetta has a certain 
like her part has a certain vocal range. She has to be able to, she has to be able to sing a high A very quietly. She also has to be able to sing, you know, so there are certain um, vocal limitations that like kind of, that kind of make creative casting choices difficult in terms of like gender and voice part. Um, But where there should be flexibility and where there often is not flexibility is um, casting... By aesthetic? Uh, yeah. Is casting, um, you know, I'm probably when these composers were writing these operas, they were writing them for white people. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean that there can't be a black nanetta and that mm. her parents, you know, that she could have a Mexican mother and possibly a white father. Well, what's you know, the problem? Exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly what's the problem. But in oftentimes it's com- a completely you white cast. To, There's a real yeah. lack of diversity mm. in opera casting. There's also a lack of body diversity. Mm. Um, there's a lot of... Um, I, mean, I don't want to think like that anymore. I know. Yeah. Uh, like there's a there's a lot there's a big problem with um um fat singers being passed over because they aren't considered to be believable as like romantic leads mm-hmm. which is ridiculous cuz fat people mm. fall in love all the time yeah and i i think um uh the thing that i know is you know and i, I obviously i i love experimental work and i think about it a lot but i find i found myself in this conversation when it like when it's coming to that lens of opera the idea of um you know something i think about a lot is sometimes the most revolutionary it's that this is actually a rosa love this is a socialist theorist quote um sorry for that if that was (laughs) anyway the quote is um uh, sometimes the most revolutionary thing to do is say what's actually happening and i think that um I kind of had that moment here where it's like art shouldn't have rules. Like very much what you're saying, like this, this idea that everything has to be exactly as originally intended or else the like perfect columns that we've built of this art is going to crumble. Like that's not how any of this works. You know, no. and I think that there's something there's something to, especially in very traditional art forms, there's something to uh, this where, you know, you offer that headspace and it it can be shocking because we are so we can be so caught in this has to be exactly how we've always done it and if there's a a different perspective it's either a minority or not listened to i don't mean a minority like you know what i mean um mm-hmm. uh but yeah and i i kind of am I'm just glad to hear that this kind of work is being done. Well, I just want to ask, that really tripped me up about the uh, opera singers. I always thought, and this is my misconception, that opera singers were heavy because they had to have this voice that came from a body that could... So, yeah, yeah, so I you really turned me around the, there. So I'm confused too. So, well, no, it does? so yeah, really, like, or especially or, like sobrettes. or well, go ahead, Mo. You should yeah, yeah. So I'm 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 like I'm like very like I'm I'm very like involved and like have deep affection for like the fat positivity spectrum. And so like what um what's frustrating in opera right now is that traditionally, you know. Op- these famous opera divas were these heavy were these heavy people yeah. like um 
Tetrazzini. She was this opera diva in the early 1900s. And there is a chicken Tetrazzini. The Italian dish is named after her because she would, after a performance, she would gorge herself. And so they named a, they named a, a dish after her. So like that, <laughs> like that's like the culture okay. of like of like fat opera singers. Like th- there's lore there. But mm-hmm. what's happening more and more is that as stagings are getting more unconventional and as um, Met Opera <laughs> broadcasts and well, exactly like people like people aren't looked at I from a hundred feet away. You know, now there are cameras right in these people's faces and there's a certain appeal to Uh. like if you want to have if you want to, you know, have a really appealing looking um, screenshot of a of a Met Opera broadcast, you're probably going to want to have the athletic tenor singing with the lovely svelte soprano. These things are filmed now. They're filmed. filmed. Yeah. Well, and and also and also a lot of a lot of stagings are more physically demanding now like mm-hmm. a lot of times there will be a call for auditions um where the singers will need to have dance experience and so in addition to singing this incredibly challenging repertoire they'll need to be moving intensely while doing it and so they will favor a more fit singer versus uh, yeah and i also think that there's something to uh, be said about the unique nature of People that study opera and produce it, there's just kind of like an undercurrent of fear that the art form, and I think this is silly because I don't think the art form, it's part of history at this point, music history, but there's a fear that this art form is going to die. And I think that there's kind of like two ways that people kind of react to that. One is, okay, let's do something different. Let's do experimental. Let's grow the art form. But then I also think there's there's a considerable energy behind like, we not only need to make these things be exactly how they always have been, but we need to present that in a way that's palatable to the widest majority of people. And like that is that what that does in a in today's day and age means that when you're the ma- the biggest opera company in the world, you're and you're filming your works, you want to make every frame look gorgeous and not sure. not gorgeous but but you know what i mean the stereotypical like standard of beauty that they have to it has to be like and there's a big drop pull for like hyper sexualizing women in opera like and and making it so that like I clearly know nothing about opera. This it's, is so it's large, interesting it's to me. It's a huge spectrum. It, I think yeah, that I had no it's, idea. It's, there's a lot of all oh, this was a going lot on. Of experiences. No, yeah. there's there's uh, there's a lot of discontent in the in the opera community. There's a lot of there's a lot of change, and there's a lot there's a lot being sh- you know shaken up. And with that, there's really cool stuff being made, and there's like there's big leaps being taken, and you know the the. the it's it are new operas being written yes i was just in one recently oh yeah um yeah there are a lot new opera new opera is is everywhere but it's not done the thing that and i don't i don't mean to like turn your entire podcast episode into us like just write down the words new opera really fast yeah Yeah. (laughs) go ahead go ahead yeah oh we have we have more uh i highly recommend um if you're interested in do you like facebook groups at all is that a thing that you sure sure um, yeah. Ross Crean. Um, I met they, Ross. Oh, great! Yeah, they're um, a composer, and they run an opera—not uh, an opera company. Yeah, a new opera Facebook group called New Opera Connection, and it's a space that's like it's got what like 
800 to I don't know if it's 800 it's, or 1200 it, I don't remember it's got a fair number of people it's of really it's a. for for a new opera space it's pretty developed in that there are just a lot of people that are both interested in singing and produ- and getting produced their own works and producing and it's one of these there are a lot of little spaces like this that exist it just ma- it gives it makes me excited that there's places for me to spend time looking at the you know a performance construct that is not necessarily theater yeah so, and, well and i oh, think there's the opera the opera scene so, right now is very vibrant yeah. and there's a lot of discussion about it um and the things i was talking about in terms of like lack of diversity you know in all ways like yes it yes there should be more but god is it getting better yeah. Yeah. I think the thing. Well, we are in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. That's the beautiful thing is when you're in a space, when you're in a place like <laughs> right. Chicago, so much is always yes. happening. Yes. Um, but the thing that is hard, and I think that is people are starting to speak out to, and you know, we've like published articles on this, but there are sticks in the mud in opera because the people that are, they want to have like this pure, like, tower of this is what opera should always be as as a like because that's it that's there's this just kind of like wanting to have a foothold in like people that are in there because the what in a lot of a lot of major houses like a a good majority of the audiences are people in their 70s and 80s they don't like they don't want to they don't want to see their opera change they want to go and see the operas they've always seen and and hear this the interpretations of the music in the same way and that's not bad either there's yeah there's nothing wrong with that absolutely but it's hard to see that it's hard to see the biggest opera companies in the world be like this is the only thing that we're going to do and when we do new works it's either going to be one out of 20 in the season or something that they don't actually talk about. Well, and I think that there are like some opera companies that do really interesting things, but you know, even people that know opera don't know about the interesting work that they're doing because they're so busy putting their marketing and money into the things that they know are going to please older donors. But like there are things that are yeah, no, I just, I, I think, I think we're starting to fall down a, a, a ranty yeah, we rabbit totally, hole. <laughs> we, we should can, move on. And I'm so sorry that this happened to your episode. I'm learning a lot. I'm, I'm really glad no, for that. Um, we've definitely talked more about this and, you know, um, what, here's what we'll do. Um, if we'll talk more after the episode. Um, but I also want to say that, like, if there are people that have thoughts and stuff, please write into the show and we'll yeah. talk about it. We have a yeah, I can read it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We'll send you stuff. And we have a um, a podcast episode that Maureen and I do called Sounding Board. So if if there are folks that want to ask questions, you can email us at scopymag@gmail.com and we'll talk more about all this stuff. Yeah, um, I like that idea. But I want to get to. There's a few minutes. We actually went a little over, but that's okay. That's um, right. It's our fault, sorry. But we, we want to get to this to your plug. So the last thing we do with the, all of our guests is a one-minute plug for anything that have uh, upcoming. Sometimes it's very obvious, like talking about the last weekend of performances for a, a project that they've been developing for years. Um, otherwise, <laughs> we love um, hearing about shout-outs to other folks that you think are doing dope work or any kind of self-care things you're consuming, movies, TV shows, music, things like that. Um, uh, I'll just say, uh, well, I don't, I don't know how to make this into a minute, but I started, oh, this, yeah, sorry. It's, I started this initiative, uh, during, uh, the little magical passion called Esther's chair. And, um, it's very slow going cause we're still trying to understand its function, but it's basically what it is. 
at the time that you purchase your ticket, you can also purchase an Esther's chair. It's $10. And at the time of the performance, the chairs are put out into the room with the other spectators and the chairs remain empty for the duration of the performance. So you can see them, they're empty and they represent people who aren't able to attend the performance because of whatever issues that they may have with depression or anxiety. And at the end of our run, this money is given to a local organization um, uh, that su that supports, you know, this that supports depression. So ours is called, oh no, I'm going to blank on the name. Shoot. I forgot the name of it. But it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an organization that's in Wicker Park or it's near Wicker Park. No stigmas. That's what it's called. No stigmas. And um, and the idea behind Esther's Chair is that any uh, performative entity can adopt it and employ it, and they can choose to display their chairs however they wish to display them. You know, like Red Orchid, my theater company, I'm from a Red Orchid theater. We're a very small theater. We only have 70 seats. We cannot put and more empty seats in our tiny theater. <laughs> so like, for instance, we would put our Esther's chairs in the hall. So you would see them when you're leaving in the long hallway. You know, it just allows uh, theaters to participate in a community um, and to put something into the community that wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. And in a way that, it, you know, a lot of people have an atta attachment to, to that. And I just really like the visceral image of the chair of the empty chair and you know in theaters i don't know if you deal with this in operas but in theaters we often deal with like a lot of nerves for instance if you don't have a full house and then there's all these seats empty and then you're staring at them and you're performing for them and i love that this gives empty seats a different meaning you know yeah. and that you can actually ascribe a meaning to it yeah. that, that is other than like oh you didn't sell that seat and so it's just sitting there for the performance mm -hmm. So it's cool. Cool. Yeah, that's yeah. beautiful. That's I know. I great. hope it works. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, uh, but it's brand new. We're just we're just trying this out. And so uh, and the other thing I just want to say is um, my theater company is a Red Orchid Theater, and they're doing a play called Thirty Three to Nothing, which is Midwestern premiere. I have super heard of that. Yes, because it's Grant really Vargas well reviewed, right? Yes, someone you should have on the show is Grant Vargas. He wrote it, but he's a he's a playwright. He's also a fantastic actor, but he's a musician, and he wrote all the music. And it's a rock musical, and um, it's just a band at their rehearsal, so it's very loud. You do get earplugs on your seat. Cool. Earplug. I love the show. I saw it three times. <laughs> Nice. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and then where can folks find out about Little Match Girl Passion? You would go to the facility website mm -hmm. um, and use facilitytheater.org. And it's right there. It comes up right there. And you can buy seats. And you can go on Facebook. And you can go on Twitter. And you can find all sorts of blabbing about facility theater doing Little Match Girl Passion. Great. <laughs> Cool. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you all so much for listening. I've been Daniel Johansson. I continue to be Maureen Smith. If you want to keep up with what we are up to, there are so many ways you can do that. The first is to head over to our website. That's scopymag.com. We spell that S-C-A-P-I-M-A-G.com. That's important because um, I spelled it S-K. Oh, yeah. So I was cool. lost like for the, a while. Like the music genre? Yeah. I've actually, we've gotten yeah. that a couple times. Yeah. Um, we got... <laughs> there were some racist people that got upset at us and they uh, called it Scabies Magazine, which oh, I was okay. like, oh, you, oh. all right, that's clever, I guess. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so that 
scopymag.com s-c-a-p-i-m-a-g.com yeah. uh, you can also find us on social media on Facebook where our page is Scopy Magazine we also have a Facebook group which we love and adore called Sounding Board um, we have a lot of folks there that uh, are making art in Chicago and are just interested in talking about you know things that we talk about we talk about astrology a lot we talk about um, politics a lot it's super fun so check that out it's a it's a interesting weird dope space um yeah and then you can also find us on tumblr uh twitter and instagram under scopy mag um and you can find our podcast the one you're listening to now scopy radio on all the podcast places itunes google play radio public under scopy radio and I'm here to talk about the importance of subscribing. Uh, if you go to our website, scopymag.com, and go to our subscribe page, there are a couple ways that you can do that. First of all, um, in order to beat the Facebook algorithm, because Facebook eats our shit, um, mm. you can enter in your email address at the top of the page um, to receive an email every time that we post something on the site. Uh, you will be one of the first people to see it, so you can be the cool person at your office to be like, hey, did you see what Scopy Mag just posted four minutes ago? And you'll be super cool. Um, or uh, if you want to become a member or a subscriber of Scopy Magazine, um, at $5 a month uh, of a such a generous contribution, uh, you'll get a cool little pin that says go out and make something. And at $10 a month, we're working on rolling out that cool incentive, but it'll be fun. So get in on that. Uh, we also have advertising opportunities. Uh, we get a lot of site traffic. We're like a super viable <laughs> advertising platform. So if you're looking to promote your business, entity, whatever, please reach out to us at scopymag at gmail.com. So come make some stuff with us. Cool. Uh, thanks again so much for listening. Go out and make something. Yep. <laughs>